Hey everyone, welcome to the Gate Alliance Church. We're so glad you could join us for this week's podcast. If you have any questions or want to learn how you can be more engaged in our church, check us out online at thegatechurch.ca. Thanks for listening and enjoy this week's podcast. We are in a series called Verbundance. Anybody use Verbundance in a sentence this week? <laughs> I tried to think this morning, how would I use that? I said, wow, there's like a verb. It's an abundance plus verbs, like action and a lot of action. So there's an abundance of what? Praise. praise is a good one. For abundance of praise. I love that. Welcome, guys. And I'm glad not everybody went away this weekend. I don't know where all these people went. <laughs> well, welcome them back next week. Well, this, in this verbundance series, we're looking at a text found in Acts 2.42. I, I personally looked at this as a blueprint for how we are to uh, be a church. And uh, we, we looked at this, and it's in your notes. It'll be up on the screen. But the very first words, I talked about this the other week, really speaks to me because it begins this whole blueprint. It says they spent their time. That's what the church did. And it reminded me we all have the same amount of time. Like we, none of us can say, oh, you have more time than I have. No, we, we're all blessed with the same amount of time. What is it, 168 hours in a week? It's just how we spend it. The prioritize, what's more important for me, uh, to how, what comes up here, you know, and, and so forth. And so the church said, well, what's important to us and a church that impacted their world and still impacts us today is this. They spent their time and we looked at these things, learning from the apostles, taking part in the fellowship and sharing the fellowship of meals and prayers. And we spent the first couple of weeks looking at the bookends of those four activities. We talked about prayer, first of all, because we had a prayer summit that night. So it made sense to begin with prayer. And I think a lot about prayer. You know, I, I was away this week um, and, uh, at, a, at a family camp because I wanted to sit under some teaching and some learning, which we'll talk about in a second. But we prayed. Every morning we gathered together at 8 o'clock and prayed. And that was one of the highlights. It's not, prayer was not always the highlight in my life. Can I just be honest with you? I saw it more as a duty and obligation, but something snapped about 20 years ago, which is good. It was, uh, we was in a church and we started, uh, I think it was Easter time. Let's meet at six o'clock in the morning on Tuesdays and pray. Oh. But I was there and suddenly I saw, uh, I saw God working and suddenly it was not like, it, it, like my prayer life went from tofu to steak and lobster. It was like not boring, blanding, but suddenly God was moving. And we saw in that church, not ones or twos or tens, but hundreds and hundreds of people will come to the Lord. Every, and I remember I showed you that whiteboard. I'd walk in on the staff entrance on, on Tuesday morning to do this prayer. And I'd say, wow, this many people accepted the Lord this week. This many people were baptized. This, and it was just like, yeah. And so he went into prayer going, yes, this is, this is amazing. And I'd love to see us move forward to that. Where we, if we advertise, this is what my goal. If we advertise a potluck and a prayer meeting, that the day will come we'll have more people at a prayer meeting than a potluck. That's when I know that it's become a desire in our, in our hearts and not just a, uh, an obligation. I know that happened to me. Uh, it can happen to all of us. And then we talked about the other book end. That was prayer of learning. And learning is so key. I said I went to family camp this week for, uh, for many days, for a few days, because I wanted to sit under teaching. I'm still learning. Man, I am starting so much, and I need to learn. And, uh, and I... And I how about it? That's one thing I learned. Can I just brag a little bit as a grandparent? How many grandparents here? You get this, you understand this. We'll look at your pictures after. Just come and show me your pictures. But we were, on Thursday, we came back home, and after lunch, we were in this cottage, and 
And Glenn and I are ready to, to, to go out and we're saying goodbye. And my four-year-old grandson runs out of the kitchen, runs up to us and goes, I would like to pray for you. And began praying for us for our safety home. I thought, kids, they can look, we, learning does not start when you get an adult. Learning kids, a four-year-old can understand. And so when, you know, when our divine kid people dry and our divine teachers go and teach kids, that, that, there's something amazing happening there that's in a foundation that, that, that can, they will know and learn. So don't say, oh, well, my kid's too young to learn right now. Ah, oh, so that was good. And then last week, uh, we, had, uh, we had the social animal. David Gandhi, Pastor Day, talked about fellowship. I gave that one to him because he is a social animal. Let's get people together. Let's have fun. Let's get, you know. And uh, he did a great job talking about the importance of fellowship, doing life together. And I love that too. In fact, yesterday we were, uh, we were with the, the Kruki family as they celebrated Victor's graduation. Wow, I love that. I was saying to David earlier, like, like, I, like, it's just great to see the Kenyan culture. And Glenn and I were talking about that on the way home. Like, that was so wonderful, the singing and, and the traditions and feeding cake to your parents. And all of this was so cool. And I love doing life together. It's so good to come together as a family. And you, some people will say, well, you know, I don't really like coming together. I don't like, you know, it's like there's people there. The pastor's not always interesting. Now, this person hurt me, and I thought, what if we did that to our families? We went home and said, I don't like this meal. That's it. I'm out of here. I'm gone. Or you hurt me. I'm gone. We would never do that to our own families. And so it's a, to me, it's like a paradox that someone says, yes, I believe in God, but I don't go to church. And I know you can look at it legalistically, and that's not what I want to do, but I want to look at it at the kind of point of view is like, I believe in God. Why wouldn't I want to be with this family? It's like saying I'm married and I have a family, but I don't want to go home. I believe in it. Good but I'm not going to participate. So it's just that fellowship is so important. And then today, we are going to look at the fourth and final activity. It's going to take us two weeks to do this. We're going to look at the feast, the fellowship of the feast. It says in our text, they spent their time in fellowship of meals. And this one, this one might surprise you a little bit. Because I think we just say, yeah, I understand the importance of prayer in the church. I get that. Yeah, learning is important. We come together as church and, and life groups and, and morning devotion time. I get the importance of learning. And yeah, doing life together is so important. I understand why that's important as a church. But eating together, how, do, how does that fit in? Why is that so important? Why, of all the activities the church could have listed, they chose four. And one of them is that we feast and eat together. Why? Well, I can tell you it all begins with God. He appointed seven annual feasts for his people to participate in. And we read about it in Leviticus. In fact, in Leviticus 23.4, it says, These are the Lord's appointed festivals. The official days for holy assembly that are to be celebrated at their proper times each year. That says a lot, believe it or not. First, let me just unpack that a little bit for us so we understand what the Bible is trying to tell us. Number one, these feasts, these festivals where they had feasts, was not was God's idea. It was not man's idea. This is God initiating these feasts. It's called the Lord's appointed feast. So right off, we know it's important because God says, this is what I want you to do. I'm behind this. I'm in, so you, listen. And then secondly, these feasts appointed by God were just not some informal, random, secular event. They were called official days. 
And people gather together as a holy assembly. That means they set themselves apart from the rest of what they're doing to, to, to these appointed feasts to participate in them. Because holy or sanctified or consecrated means being set apart for God's purposes. So these are holy assemblies. This is for God's people to come and set themselves apart and gather to, to do these feasts. And finally, these feasts were to be celebrated at very specific times of the year. They're not just sell them randomly or when I felt like, let's get together and eat sort of thing. God has set proper times, it says, proper times each year for these feasts to be celebrated. And then we find all that in Leviticus 23, 24. And the rest of the chapter begins to talk about why God appointed this feast. What's the purpose? What do they represent? So the seven biblical feasts can be grouped into two categories. There is the spring holy days and the autumn holy days. How many people love spring? That's your favorite. How many of you is fall and autumn? Yes. Summer's in between, actually. Not like God. But the spring feasts include this, Passover, say unleavened bread, first fruits, uh, and Pentecost. If it's kind of chopped off, they take a word for it, it's Pentecost. And in the autumn, there were these feasts, the Feast of the Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, uh, and the tabernacles, should be the other word, but we're getting chopped off there. And today we're going to focus on the first two feasts in the spring, because this is, this is amazing to me, that, that, that which, were, which was the Feast of Passover, which we probably are familiar with, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So each of these seven feasts God appoints for his people to gather together was either for the purpose of worship or to repent or to celebrate or to reflect in God's provision for their life. He calls us to do this regularly through different times of the year. And so why does God do this? Why does he point us to recognize and participate in these feasts? And here's why. Here's why. There is more than food at work in these feasts. I mean, it'd be good enough that there is food, but that's not the main reason there's more. These official days, these holy days, which were a specific date, correspond with either Jesus' first coming or he's coming back again. Every one of these feasts point to Jesus. And that's why the early church is saying, we're celebrating. We are doing the fellowship of feasts. And why we still need to really participate in them today. And the Bible makes this point clear. We read this. So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. Listen to this. This this is key. So these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And what is that reality? And Christ himself is that reality. So the Apostle Paul, he's making the point, these biblical feasts are directly tied into Jesus, either his first coming or his coming again. And in the Old Testament, these feasts are shadows of the reality, which is to come. And that reality was and is Jesus Christ. So we ask the question, what in these feasts point us to Jesus Christ? And what he did? Well, the quick answer is they point us to his crucifixion. They point us to his resurrection. They point us to the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. And uh, we all read all about that in the gospel and the Acts. So we are going to see some amazing things regarding these feasts over the next few couple of weeks, two weeks. And not only did each one of these feasts point to Jesus, and that Jesus fulfills them, but God orchestrated these feasts, these particular dates, and what Jesus did on the same, at the same time. Like, it doesn't make much sense right now, but you're going to understand a little better as I go. So let's begin with the very first one. 
Passover. We, we understand Passover. We've heard about it. Uh, George paid a few weeks ago up here talking about the importance of Passover and the mention of it. And so I think the best way I find sometimes just to kind of condense and you know what Passover is, is get a kid's video. Get a kid's video to explain. So we're going to watch just this three-minute video of that, that, that I can understand that talks about Passover. So just check this out for a few seconds. God's story, Passover. So part of God's story is about Passover, and it goes like this. It all started when the Israelites were stuck as slaves in Egypt. They were forced to work in fields and make bricks and mortar. Worse, the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh, and the other people in charge didn't care if God's family was hot or tired or hungry or sad or hurt or just plain miserable. And they were. But even in the middle of all that, God's family grew. In fact, they got so big that Pharaoh was scared they might attack and overpower him. He made them work even harder to show them he was boss. Soon the Israelites were even more miserable. They begged God for help. Well, guess what? God saw what Pharaoh was doing to his family, and he didn't like it one bit. So he planned a rescue. He sent a man named Moses to lead God's family out of Egypt and into a brand new, beautiful home called the Promised Land. But when Moses told Pharaoh to let God's family leave, Pharaoh said no. Remember, Pharaoh thought he was the boss. The thing is, God is really in control, and even rulers of countries should obey him. So nine different times, God sent plagues to show Pharaoh his power. The plagues were like punishments to Egypt for keeping God's family as slaves. After each one, Moses asked Pharaoh to let God's family go, but Pharaoh kept saying no. Then Moses told Pharaoh that God loves his family so much that he will rescue them no matter how many times Pharaoh refused to obey. So there would be one more plague, one that would wipe out the oldest son in every house in Egypt. But of course, God had a special plan for his family. He told them to take their best lamb or young goat, kill it, and paint the blood on the doorframe. Then they should eat the meat with bitter herbs and some flat bread made without yeast called unleavened bread, which is cheap and can be made quickly. In fact, God asked his family to eat the whole meal as if they were ready to run right out the door with their shoes on and their walking sticks in hand. They obeyed. Good thing, too, because that very night, the angel of death came. But just like God promised, he passed over the houses with blood on the door. Finally, Pharaoh realized God was in charge and that God loved his family and that Pharaoh couldn't stop God's rescue plan. He said God's family should get far away from Egypt. They left in a hurry. For hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after that, God's family celebrated the night God rescued them by eating unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and lamb. But that rescue was just a preview to the big rescue God had planned for the whole world. Remember, the ruler of this world, the devil, wants us to work for him and live bitter, sad lives, separated from God. And we all do wrong things sometimes and deserve to die as punishment. So God sent his very own son to earth. He lived the perfect life we should have lived, and died the awful death we should have died. But three days after he died, Jesus came back to life. That means he got rid of death and it can't separate us from God anymore. And you know what? Right before Jesus died, he celebrated Passover one last time, but without the lamb. See, Jesus showed us that he is our lamb. And just like the lambs died so that the sons could stay with their families, Jesus died so that we can be part of God's family. One day he'll recreate a perfect home for us and it'll be even better than the promised land. And that's the story of Passover. So in case you missed it, here's the quick version. God's family was miserable. 
They begged God for help. God planned a rescue. Pharaoh said no. God showed his power. The oldest sons had to die. Lambs took their place. God rescued his family. They celebrated Passover. Death was our punishment too. God sent his son. He took our place. God rescued us. And that's a part of God's story. Praise the Lord for God's, our children's videos. It's so good. <clears throat> so I'm going to speak slower. I get excited as so I go fast. I just want to make sure you don't miss this. The people in God's family were saved when they applied the blood of the land to the doorposts of their home. The, this act demonstrated their trust and their faith in God to save them from death when they applied the blood of the Passover lamb to their life. And indeed, death passed over them. That's why we call it Passover. So God's people celebrated the Passover each year to remember and give thanks that he delivered them. He saved them. And before each Passover feast, <clears throat> families, what they would do, what they do is select their lambs late in the afternoon. On the, in the Jewish calendar, it was called the 10th of Nisan. They called this Lamb Selection Day. It's a good name. The day you select the lamb, we call it Lamb Selection Day. And every family would select a male lamb without blemish to be sacrificed as an atonement for their sin. <clears throat> that was on Lamb Selection Day. The week, which was 10th of Nisan, the week before his crucifixion, Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. But what we call Palm Sunday is actually Lamb Selection Day, the same day. According to Mark 11.11, Jesus rode into Jerusalem for the Passover in the late afternoon on Lamb Selection Day, the very time when people would select their lamb to be sacrificed. So what's happening here on Lamb Selection Day, God is choosing his Passover lamb to be sacrificed. His own son, who is without sin, without blemish, would become our ultimate Passover lamb. And you say, Mark, where do you get this? Well, just in 1 Corinthians alone, Christ, it says Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. This connection is made. God sent his son into Jerusalem on the same day that the Jewish people for 1,500 years have been selecting lambs. And this is why we talk about applying the blood of Christ to our life. That may sound strange to people and odd until we understand, okay, this is, comes out of this Passover where we apply the blood, death pass over us. Jesus shed his blood so if we would accept that and apply it to our lives, death will pass over us. God the Father is choosing Jesus as the Lamb on Lamb Selection Day to be our Passover. And talking about Jesus and Revelation, John has this vision. And in the vision he says, I saw a thousand angels and they're singing this song. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain or slaughtered. Worthy is the Lamb. That's what Jesus is. So to summarize again, just to make sure we get this, the Passover feast is when God's people remembered how death passed over them because they applied the blood of the lamb. Passover lamb was sacrificed on the 14th of Nisan. What day do you think Jesus was 
crucified. Lamb selection day was on the 10th. The Passover where they slaughtered the lamb was, uh, was, was on the uh, 14th of Nisan. What day was Jesus crucified as our Passover lamb? Evidence points to Friday, April 3rd, AD 33. The same day of the crucifixion, or the day of the crucifixion was on the 14th of Nisan. The same day. People were sacrificing their lamb. Jesus was sacrificed as our Passover lamb. That's amazing to me. God just, he orchestrates these events. That's what I'm saying. Like, like Jesus fulfilled them, but God orchestrated that these feasts would line up with pointing to Jesus. Do you see that? And then we're going to look at just one more festival today. We're going to take communion, but this is the festival of unleavened bread. Because immediately following Passover was this feast of unleavened bread, where people were required for seven days for a week to eat unleavened bread. Why unleavened bread? Well, we know that since the children of Israel left Egypt hastily, they don't have time to make bread and let it rise. They, so they, you know, on the very first Passover, they had unleavened bread. And the same way, we must be ready to leave this world. We, we got Jesus on a rescue mission. He's coming back again. We must be prepared. We must be ready. We don't have time. We don't have to think, oh, of all the time in the world, I can let, no, you don't. Jesus said, I will come like a thief in the night. Sometimes death hits us suddenly. I was talking to a lady uh, this week in the prayer time who happened to be, I love this, so at 8 o'clock at family camp, this pastor came in and uh, she started uh, leading us in, some of you will know what this means, shmorp. I found out she was a church renewal pastor. I, went, I know this. And so we had a church renewal pastor leading us in prayer. And she said, one day, um, my husband didn't wake up. And she was a widow, not that old. You don't know. You, you, you don't know. So you have to be prepared at all times for Jesus to come and take you home. We must be ready to leave at a moment's notice. Also, unleavened bread that is bread without yeast or leaven, is a symbol for sin. Whenever leaven or yeast is mentioned in the Old Testament or the New Testament, I think uh, 22 times in the Old Testament, 17 in the New, it almost always refers to sin or evil. So, for example, in Corinth, the church in Corinth, there was a man there who was professing to be a follower, but was living a very willful, sinful life without conviction or repentance. So the Apostle Paul writes to the church regarding the danger of his sin because sin, like yeast or leaven, has a way of spreading. And Paul writes this, Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads to the whole patch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you'll be like a fresh patch of dough made without yeast which is what you really are. Listen to this. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Again, another connection. So let us celebrate the festival, right? Not with old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. So leaven's like this metaphor for sin. And like leaven that permeates the whole lump of dough, sin will spread in, in people and even in a church and, and in a nation, eventually to where it's overwhelming, to the point of bondage and eventually death. So what Paul teaches in Galatians, the false teaching, a false teaching is like a little yeast 
that spreads through the whole patch of dough. So the Bible is saying sin, like yeast is, is a metaphor, uh, leaven is a metaphor for sin. Now the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the bread of life who is without leaven, who is without sin. And that's why when we take, participate in communion today, we use unleavened bread to represent Christ because he is without sin. He's giving his body, his life to us that's without sin. He is the bread of life without leaven. And we read in the Bible where Jesus invites his disciples to participate in the Lord's Supper. He says, it says this, as they're eating, Jesus took some bread and he blessed it, then he broke it in pieces and gave it to his disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. Now I want you to just get a hold of this picture. When you're invited to take communion, Jesus stands before you and extends his hands out to you and he says, I'm giving you my life. It will cost me my life. I'm giving you my life. It'll cost me my life, but I'm willing to do this. I'm wanting to sacrifice my life, which has no sin or leaven because your life has sin. And sin cannot live in eternity in heaven. Sin is death. The Bible is clear about this. The wages of sin is death. What I earn, what I deserve is death. Jesus is the bread of life. A bread without leaven or sin. He's willing to exchange his righteousness, his unblemished life for my blemished life. He's willing to take his life, which is whole and perfect, and allow it to be broken for you. You get that? Jesus say, my life is is whole, but I'm going to break it for you. How does it make you feel? That kind of love. Jesus stands before you and says, receive this gift I'm giving you. It costs me much, but I'll love you more. When a child creates for you a little a piece of art, you know, maybe your child or grandchild comes and says, I made this for you. Here it is. How does it make you feel? Now, that drawing or that painting isn't something you probably would find in an art gallery. If you went to an art gallery and you saw the, you know, a picture that your grandchild or child gave you or, and you put it up on the wall of an art gallery, you say, who did that? A child could do that. But the value in that piece of art isn't found in what the world values. The value for you is found in the one who gives it to you. You cherish it because the love this child gives it to you with and the love that you have for them. So just to say that, I won't be going to any restaurant. I will not be going to a restaurant soon and ordering a big plate of unleavened bread. I want the big fluffy yeast stuff. So Jesus stands before me and says, here's a piece of unleavened bread. Isn't, it isn't like, a, it's not the leavened bread that's attractive. but the one who gives it and what it means to me is where my value is found. This is my body without sin, broken for you. And he wants to give that to you and to me. And this is the part that amazes me. And Jesus is full of joy wanting to do this. We read in Hebrews, uh, it says this, because of the joy awaiting him, 
Jesus endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And it had a lot of shame. There was a lot of pain. What was the joy awaiting Jesus? It wasn't that he would soon be in heaven. You know, Jesus is up the cross going, okay, so I'll do this a little bit longer, then I'll be back in heaven. Like, he's God. He could come down off that cross any time he wanted to and save himself. In fact, when he was arrested, he told his disciples, don't you realize that I asked my father for a thousand angels to protect us? And he would send them instantly. So Jesus didn't have to endure the cross for his own sake. He'd have to do this to get, he's already God. He, he, heaven is his just like this. He could have ended that event on the cross at any time. So if he didn't endure the cross for himself, for his sake, whose sake is he doing it for? And what brought him joy, because he knew by doing this, he was removing the obstacle, the very thing that would keep us from living with him forever in heaven. He's exchanging his righteousness that had become ours, that we stand to live in God in heaven with God forever. That gave him great joy. It is knowing when death comes to you, when it comes to me, because all have sinned, right? But for those who applied the blood, who have accepted Jesus' sinless gift, eternal death, eternal hell, becomes eternal life. Death will pass over you because you applied the blood. Here's how I think, maybe this will help you, maybe it won't, but do this for me. Picture in your mind a child that you love very much. It could be your own child, a grandchild, a nephew, or a niece. And you were given the chance to save their life. How would that make you feel? Picture that child. You are able to step in and save their life. And maybe it, maybe it even hurt you for a moment or for a season. But you have this joy because this precious child you love so much was in grave danger, and because of your love, they're now saved. You endured maybe a little pain, but that's okay because they're safe. The pain's not, it's not the issue, it's their, it's their life. That's the joy awaiting Jesus. Someday, those who apply the blood will see him face to face and go, oh, I died for this. I died for you. So just like Lamb Selection Day and the Passover feast, there's much more here than just eating a piece of bread in a feast of unleavened bread. There's much more than just a ritual. And I know we've taken communion many times, and my fear is that this becomes a ritual, that I don't stop and really think about what is happening here, what it represents. Jesus, or Glenda was reading in her uh, devotions this week, uh, this quote, rituals have the potential to distract from proper observance of God's presence. So I just have a few more notes, but I'm going to stop at this point in the message. We're going to partake in communion together. I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the blood as well. But I just want you to, to understand, Jesus is standing before you. And if you would say to him, I have applied the blood that you shed to my life. I 
I've exchanged your righteousness for my sin. And if you're here today and you would say, understand that Jesus stands before you and he says, this is my body broken for you, my life without sin given for your life with sin. I invite you to participate in this today. I'm going to have the elders come forward. I'm going to have them hand out both the bread and the, the, the cup together at the same time. And then we will take it together. As we do that, we're going to sing a song. Worship team's going to come. We're going to sing a song uh, about for, in Christ alone. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We make these messages available to give you a window into our church, but also an open gate for you to join in with our community. Our Sunday service is at 10 a.m., and we look forward to seeing you soon. And know that there is a place for you at the gate. Please remember to visit thegatechurch.ca for more information about our church.